Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 9th, we're studying Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. As the distribution of food to widows becomes an increasingly large task, the church selects seven men of good repute for this service, so that the apostles can continue to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much. Great to be here. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. What should we know about the book of Acts and everything leading up to this moment as we prepare to look at the text today? Sure. Well, we're in a big transitional time now because the church is being persecuted in uh, in Jerusalem, uh, the, but the persecution has just begun. Uh, we have James uh, killed. We have the apostles arrested. Uh, they're released. They're, they're beaten. They're glad to be uh, what this. How we ended verse chapter five, verse forty-one. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Absolutely beautiful. And then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. So, so the church continues to grow. I was reading one commentary this morning that was estimating the size of the church now 20 to 25,000 uh, strong in Jerusalem. And so uh, the difficulty that the church is going to cause um, to the, to the synagogue, to the Sanhedrin, to the, to those who are resisting uh, Christ as the Messiah is going to grow and grow, and it's going to culminate in, well, in what's going to happen in chapter 7, the great preaching and martyrdom of St. Stephen, who we're going to be introduced to. And in a way, the introduction to of St. Stephen is to introduce us to St. Paul, who's going to be there and approve of the stoning of Stephen. So if we have Acts and in two parts, we see the first part is really the acts of Peter, and the, the second part is the acts of Paul, and and so this, it's a it's sort of a three step transition to get from Peter to Paul, and it goes by Peter, then the appointment of the deacons, the highlight of the deacons is Stephen, who preached faithfully, worked miracles, and then was, for all his great work, ends up being stoned to death while Saul is approving it and then wants to further that persecution before the Lord claims him as his untimely called apostle. So we're in the middle of that uh, transition, which is wonderful, a wonderful place to be in to study. You mentioned the, the possibility that the church in Jerusalem has twenty to 25,000 believers at this point. It, the text that we have today in the ESV starts, now in these days, uh, we've kind of, is there any indication of how far away from Pentecost we might be? Or I know we're before the conversion of St. Paul. Any idea of, of where we are in the timeline at this point? Sure. So the, 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 uh, the Bible scholars, and I, I don't know how to 
I, I know neither how to assert this with a great confidence, which I would like to, or refute it either way. But the um, the Bible scholars will oftentimes point to the stoning of Stephen as a way to help date a, mu- a bunch of these events. And the reason is because, if you remember, the Romans had not permitted uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, to act upon uh, capital crimes. So they could condemn someone to death, but they had to hand them over to the Romans for them to be crucified. So stoning is the way that the Sanhedrin or the Jewish tradition has for capital punishment, a crucifixion, or, I mean, the Romans had a dozen different ways they could kill you. Right. Each year they'd come up with a creative different way to kill you. Uh, but but the fact that Stephen was stoned is really curious because you have to ask, well, how, why did they do that? They, they were afraid even to stone Jesus. They had to hand him over to Pilate to be crucified. Why were they so bold to stone him? It could be answered by, uh, one is that they were simply carried away with rage and couldn't control themselves. Or the uh, possibility that put out there by the Bible scholars is that there was a gap in the Roman government of Judea when Pilate was recalled and before the next guy came, whose name I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And that occurred about three and a half years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So so that we're, we're looking at about three and a half years into the church. That that would be the best guess that we have. And that's also nice because that that will match up really well with the prophecy of Daniel. This 70 weeks that the Lord appoints, which we understand is weeks of years. And we do out the, and we do the timeline and we see that Jesus was baptized at the beginning of the 69th week, three and a half years later. He's crucified to bring an end to sacrifice. And then three and a half years after that, St. Stephen is stoned, and that marks the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, that's That was Luther's idea and a, a bunch of other uh, Bible old commentators' idea, and that matches up well with how I think of the timeline. So three and a half years into the life of the church. Okay, so maybe mid-30s A.D., somewhere in there. Well, we have to say, if we put the crucifixion at 33 AD, I like that date um, for with Pastor Steinman, what he's done there. That okay. puts this at about 36 or 37. Okay. Okay. So 36, 37 AD, about three and a half years after Jesus' death, resurrection, Pentecost, all those things happen in pretty quick succession. About three and a half years later, we have the text for today. The church has grown and continues to grow. We pick up the text now in Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 7 of the text. 
have these bookends on either side of what I just read of the increase in number because of the word of God. And the, the main event here in this section starts with a complaint between Hellenists and Hebrews and the matter of widows being neglected. To start off with, who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So probably there's a lot of different ways to go. Here, here's my best guess. So Hellenism refers to Greek, both language and culture. Hebrew also to language and culture. Um, there's the Hellenizers, which we're used to hearing about, and those are going to be uh, especially Jews or any non-Greek people who are going to ad- adopt a Hellenistic lifestyle. They're going to adopt Greek language, Greek clothing, Greek food. They're going to abandon their Jewish upbringing, the, the Hellenizers. The Hellenists here are probably do not refer to that, but rather to those uh, Jews who were either in dispersion for a number of generations, one for one reason or another, who lost their Hebrew language, their uh, Aramaic, and uh, and were speaking Greek, uh, reading the Bible in the Septuagint translation, the Greek t- translation of the Old Testament, but who were in every other way Jewish. I think that's the best, the best guess on what the Hellenists here were. And so there was synagogues in and around Jerusalem that would have been all in Greek. Amazing to think about the, that they would have been reading Moses in the Greek and they would have been carrying on in Greek, talking in Greek. The Hebrews, on the other hand, would have been those Jews who either um, stayed in Jerusalem or were in the diaspora uh, sent to places with very large Hebrew populations. So maybe Babylon or Alexandria in, in Egypt or in North Africa, that those, there were such large Hebrew populations, Jewish populations in those places that the people were able to maintain their Hebrew. And so as they come back from the dispersion in 400, uh, 300, and as they're gathered back into Jerusalem, you have some who, because of the generation's, spent either in Asia or in Greece or in, in Italy or Spain or whatever in Europe, they lost their, their Hebrew and the others who had maintained it and they were, and they were there. Mm-hmm. I, I think we want to be careful to not draw too big of a line between them because for example, the disciples would have been of the Hebrews. We're going to see that play out and that they knew Greek, Peter, John, all right in Greek. Paul is, fluent in greek jesus is apparently able to speak to Pilate in greek that so just because they're hebrews doesn't mean they're unfamiliar with the greek and also the hellenists on the other hand would have been able to know some uh hebrew as well paul who grows up in tarsus that would have been a hellenizing place is incredibly competent uh, in his hebrew and things like this. So there would have been a lot a lot of crossover, but it seems like there's sort of two groups here, those who are worshiping and, and talking in Greek and those who are worshiping and talking in Hebrew. And, and those Christians who are speaking Greek, especially those widows who are speaking Greek, feel neglected in what's here called the daily distribution. That's, that's a curious thing to consider what that was to begin with. Hmm. But uh, but they feel neglected, and they bring their complaint uh, to the apostles, and they're going to now go and, and try to address it as best they can. Is there, and not to not to say too much, is there 
uh, sort of prejudice one way or the other between these two groups, as we can tell? Or did the Hebrews look down upon the Hellenists or vice versa? Probably. I mean, you know, the Hebrews look down on everybody. That's the, that's part of the problem of being Hebrew. And so you, you got to say, well, I mean, you, you get it today. Uh, the same, you know, the same tendency there is if someone, but you can imagine if, if people are reading Moses in the, in the, uh, in the Hebrew, and then you come along with your copy of the Septuagint, you're reading in the Greek that you're going to say, Oh, well, you, you have a translation of Moses where I have Moses himself, this kind of thing. Although it doesn't seem like, it grew into uh, it wasn't a distinction like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a distinction of uh, it seems like it was more of a practical distinction, but surely there's going to be some uh, some despising one after the other. So the, so the Hebrews are going to despise the Greeks, but then the Greeks would also probably have their own reason for pride. I mean, after all, they're connected mm-hmm. to Athens and to Rome, to the, mm-hmm. to the cultures that really matter. They can read the newspaper, uh, so um, so there's probably a looking down on each other on either way. But the reason for this for the overlooking of the distribution isn't isn't brought up here. It's almost like it. it Luke is hinting that there was that there was a division that was there. Um, he doesn't give us much more detail about it, but he, neither does he give us any indication that the complaint that was brought was either an unjust complaint, it seems like it was immediately recognized as, yeah, that's a legitimate complaint, and that there's no hesitancy of the of the apostles to address the complaint. So they're going to go immediately and say, oh, you're right, we want to solve this problem as best we can. And so there's no defensiveness or self-justification or whatever. They say, yep, you're right. Let's let's make sure we get this right, which so, is great to see. Well, so in, in that sense, it's not as strong a division as, say, between Jew and Gentile, which will become a pretty big deal later in the book of Acts. There's going to be a whole council head about it. This one, they recognize, yeah, you're right. This is a problem. We need to do something about it. And that's that. Yep, that's that. It, it, that's an amazing thing. I mean, really, one of the big points that Luke is going to make in the entire book of Acts is that uh, this that the gospel is also for the Gentiles right. and, and the Holy spirit is going to do so many things to push the apostles over those hurdles that Jesus s- said that they're going to have to jump. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Fine. Judea. No problem. Samaria. What? The ends of the earth. You're crazy. <laughs> so that, so that Jesus and the, the Holy spirit and I mean, God, the father to the entire Trinity is going to just sort of be dragging the, apostles over these hurdles to get them to go and preach and baptize and lay hands on people in Samaria and in the ends of the earth, in these Gentile places. But you're right, this, um, the, the, the dispute here has not, it might, it might be an echo of the more intense dispute that's on the way, but there's no, there's no indication of the seriousness. Like they had any problem saying, Oh no, no, the, the Hellenist widows, they should be supported just like the Hebrew widows. That's what it means to be a Christian. Mm. So you mentioned this already, the, the complaint arises based on this daily distribution in particular with the widows. What is this daily distribution that's being talked about here? Don't know. Don't know. It seems like there was a, um, uh, in Jerusalem, that the church was something like a commune or that there was simply shared uh, resources. 
to an extreme degree. And it seems like that was especially for the benefit of the widows, um, maybe also, also the orphans. Those two always go together in the Lord's care, widows and orphans. But here the widows were able to receive uh, some food from the church. This probably was important because we'll remember that there was a the social support network that was there in Jerusalem would have been built around the synagogue. And when someone's kicked out of the synagogue, all those resources are mm. are left behind. So, so remember the blind man who is kicked out of the synagogue in the Gospel of John, that, that now he, his support, especially uh, that he needed it because of his blindness, that, that would, he would have lost that. Of course, Jesus gave him something better sight, but now a new family too. So the church is serving as a family to those who are, um, who are without family. Paul will write about this to Timothy talking about, uh, enrolling widows in the office of widow Mm. so that there was a, an official status in the church of widow. And that would have been, uh, that those would have been blessed and taken care of by the church, uh, presumably because, their husbands were no longer able to care for them, being dead, of course, and that there was no other really support structure for the family. So the church comes along and does it, which is great. But it's getting, so the complaint comes up, and what it exposes is that the disciples are not doing a good job at this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So so here comes a complaint. Hey, uh, these uh, these. Hellenist widows are getting neglected in the distribution. You apostles are doing the distribution, and you're not doing it well. Maybe because there was too many, the, the, the church was growing too fast, and so they weren't able to keep up with the workload. Maybe because they were just no good at it, and they needed men who were better at at handling this distribution, and they were trying to do it all, and that's what's gonna that's what's gonna come out of this. You're not do the, the, the accusation comes. Hey, you're not doing this well, and they don't say, "Well, who are you to question the Lord's?" Ap- we're apostles. Everything we do is right and perfect. No, they don't say that at all. They don't say that. It was just great for us to see. They say, "You're right. Your complaint is valid. We're not doing a good job at this for whatever reason. So we need to do something different. And so let's let's work together and make it work." So that, uh, so that the the so that none of the widows are neglected and all the people are taken care of. So we begin to hear what the twelve say, starting in verse two, as to their suggestion as to how to fix this valid complaint. What what's their what's their suggestion? What do they put forward to the church? Well, they they say the first thing is we are called by the Lord Jesus to preach the word of God. And, and these duties here are infringing upon our preaching, our teaching, our prayers, our conduct of, conduct of worship, and so, so forth. So they recognize that it's not good, or it's not, here it says, it's not right that we give that up in order to make sure that this all goes well. There's just a certain amount of time that it's going to take. So if we're not going to do it, we need other people to do it. So they go to the church and they say, pick out from among yourselves seven men, and and then it'll give the requirements of good repute, so good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll appoint them to this duty. So you bring, you find some men that you trust that, that are, that have a good reputation, that have the Holy Spirit, 
So they're Christian, they're baptized, and also uh, the the Holy Spirit has given them the gift of wisdom. That's what's really needed here, wisdom. Hmm. You find those guys, we'll put them in place to make sure this this happens. Now, it is interesting that they say seven. Here's, I don't know if you came across any interesting notes on on the on the why it says seven uh the 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 best conjecture that i saw looking at the commentaries was that there were seven places where the church was meeting hmm. uh but, but maybe the important thing here is it's not 12 these deacons are not uh servants of the apostles so that each apostle gets his own deacon to do what he would but he, but these deacons are given to the church, so there's seven of them, not twelve of them. That's that's the key point, and and these seven men are chosen by the congregation, and then approved of by the apostles, and they're put in place. And they sound like a pretty kind of cool group of guys. Uh, Stephen is listed first because he's going to be most important. Philip, uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon. Parmenas, Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. So these guys are all uh, chosen from amongst the church and put into the place. They prayed, they laid their hands on them. So they set them apart for this particular work. Uh, And seemingly it it was going, well, that that was a good solution for the problem. Mm. Uh, The only thing that I came across with the seven, I saw some conjectures. I I did not come across the one seven different places. That's an intriguing thought. The the one that I saw suggested that seven was the number that would work. It was a, it was a practical consideration, which I don't know, I suppose that could be, they, they knew seven would do the job. And so they chose seven. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe there's something more. Seven certainly, certainly is a, a biblical number that we see repeated. And I do think that what you said about not being 12, that it's not like you get a, you get a deacon, I get a deacon and, and Thomas gets a deacon, <laughs> something like that. Right. right? right. <laughs> uh, but so let's, let's talk a little bit about this, this office of, and you've been using the term deacon related to the Greek word that's behind it. What is this office? And is it still around in the church? Is this a, a prescriptive thing for the church? Is it a descriptive thing of what happened there in Jerusalem? Talk about some of those issues that surround this this chat this text. Yeah, I I, um, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, and so please, please feel free to correct me here. I, I think that you make that distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. That's always a really helpful distinction to have in mind when reading the Book of Acts. Is this something that they did that's being described, or is this something that Jesus instituted? that is now uh, appointed for us to do, that we should emulate and copy amongst ourselves. It seems like what we have here is a wonderful example of sanctified problem solving. And and so I, I think it's going to be descriptive in the details, but prescriptive in the process, if that makes sense. So that the, we see the church in Jerusalem, there's certain difficulties that the church in Jerusalem has, that those difficulties are brought to the apostles who in humility and desire to serve those there uh, get together and work with the church to, to, to make it happen and to, and to make sure everyone's cared for. And so it gives us a beautiful picture of how things were going in the church and a good example of, of, of godly wisdom that we ought to pursue, but I don't think it is appointing for us 
um, any particular any particular office. Mm-hmm. Now, can the church have have deacons or people appointed to handle the temporal um, affairs of the church for the sake of the word of God? Absolutely, mm-hmm. for sure. Would it be always necessary, or, or could, for example, the the um, the goods of the church to support those people who need it, could it be distributed by the pastor? It doesn't have to be a different office. Well, I, I think in small congregations, for example, it would be fine to have the pastor also handing out the the, the, the stuff that's needed to support, support the poor, which the church is always doing. Um, so it's, I think it's probably a matter of um, practical consideration on, on how things are going in the church and, um, how uh, how much work there is. The point is that the Word of God cannot be neglected. Mm. That has to be the chief work of the church. And if things are getting in, in the way of, of preaching and teaching the Word of God, then things have to be adjusted so that the word can be at the center of the church's life. Mm. I like the the term sanctified problem solving. It, it reminds me of, of what happens in, I think it's in Exodus 18 where, where Moses's father-in-law suggests you need some help doing the work that you're doing. And he appoints the, the various judges. Is there something similar happening here? You think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, that's probably a great parallel because, um, because it happened. Uh, in fact, it, Luke probably has that parallel already in the back of his mind that uh, that that here the church is growing and has reached a certain point where the apostles are not enough. Their time and their wisdom is not sufficient for all the work. And so it has to be expanded just like it was in the time of Moses. And it's probably not accidental that uh, that the Sanhedrin, which was, which was that group that Moses appointed. I mean, he appointed those 70 elders, and that, those 70 elders carried through as the court in Israel for the whole time, that the Sanhedrin was busy persecuting the church. And so now the church is going to have their own version of uh, helpers, but instead of going out and persecuting the Christians, they're going out and blessing the widows. Mm-hmm. So here the Christian, quote, Sanhedrin, the team of deacons, is are going out to bless not to curse and destroy Mm, yeah that's a that's a fantastic parallel we're going to keep looking at this text from acts chapter six on the other side of the break you're listening to sharp iron on kfu we have pastor brian wolfmuller with us this morning we'll be right back please stick around Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 9th. We're studying Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15 with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. 
Pastor Wolfmuir, prior to the break, we were talking about these seven men who are appointed. They're set aside by the apostles. The qualifications are listed. We can spend a little more time talking about what those means. You've got good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. What are what are those three things that they're looking for in these seven men? I think that, you know, the Lutherans are often accused of not speaking enough about the Holy Spirit. And I <laughs> think that might be right. And But here's why. Because the, the charismatic church for the last 150 years has made the argument that the Holy Spirit comes and then you go crazy. So the Spirit makes you uh, do things you never thought you would do or never thought you should do or say things you never thought of saying before. In other words, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit seems to be working against self-control and against an orderly life. The, the Holy Spirit seems to be a chaos maker. That is not how the Holy Spirit comes in the Bible. It's, just, it's simply not. So so that the Holy Spirit comes to give us the gifts needed for our vocation. First, for our vocation of Christian, which is why the Holy Spirit comes and gives us faith. No one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes and gives us a faith and a trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes to give us the other gifts that are needed for serving and blessing our neighbor. And so here, what's the gift that these men particularly needed is the gift of wisdom to be able to uh, to apply the scripture to the various problems of life. And so here these guys have wisdom and they're full of the Holy Spirit. That uh, so, so it's good for us to think of the Holy Spirit uh, coming to us connected to our vocations. I remember one time uh, when a pastor was being ordained and the, 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 the other pastors came and laid their hands on him and prayed for the Holy Spirit uh, to come upon this guy. And someone in the back says, I think we should have called a pastor who already had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just, he's just now getting the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Boy, we're in trouble. But that, this is the point. Is that, so, yes, the, the man had the Holy Spirit as a Christian, even as a student of God's word, but now the Holy Spirit comes upon us for the vocations into which we're called. And that's seen especially at the end of the text when the apostles are going to lay hands on these men and pray for the Holy Spirit so that that wisdom that they have already would be increased and the Holy Spirit would would come to support the, uh, the work that they're appointed to do. Uh, it's wonderful. The same thing happens when we confirm someone. We lay our hands on their heads and we pray for the Holy Spirit to support them in the work that they have now of being a public Christian, a confessor of Christ. Or when a couple is married, we do the same thing. We lay our hands on them and we pray that the Lord would give them the gifts that he promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, so that we pray the Holy Spirit would come to, upon them to help them be good husband and wife. And as the Lord arranges it, a good mother or a good father. Mm. So, so the Holy Spirit comes with gifts connected to our offices. And this is such a wonderful biblical truth that that I want to I, I just want to keep sort of hammering that bell for, for Lutherans, because when we understand this is how the Holy Spirit comes and works and blesses, then it makes all the conversation about the Holy Spirit a lot less nerve wracking and crazy and more necessary. So when I go to read the Bible, I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to understand and to embrace and to hold fast and to remember this word of truth, which you're giving me as a student of your word. 
And when I wake up to do my duty as a pastor or as a husband or a father, I pray the Holy Spirit would help me according to my offices. And the Holy Spirit is pleased then to fill us. That's the word used here. To fill us for those works. I think that's a very helpful a very helpful comment, and particularly for us Lutherans, who who perhaps sometimes are reticent to speak in that way because of the ways, as you pointed out, sometimes this language gets misused. But the, the what I really appreciate about what you're saying there is is asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us in those ways is asking him to do those things that he's promised to do, mm-hmm. which is the, mm-hmm. the the prayer that the Lord loves to to answer. I, I recall once being, you know, we'll often pray, Lord, be with us. Or as you said, dear Holy Spirit, please fill us now as we read your scriptures. And the question was, well, isn't, isn't he already with us? Well, yes, but, but let's ask him to do that, which he has promised and not doubt that he will certainly do it. And that's just a fantastic way of, of praying. And I think it makes our prayers joyful and confident in the Lord that he is going to do these things. Absolutely. So Pastor Wolfmuller, let's talk a little bit about these seven men. The The first two, I think, are the they are the most well-known. We hear more about them in the book of Acts, Stephen and Philip. What about the other ones? Anything about their names in particular? What What do we know about these men that are mentioned? There's there's a early church. So nothing about the, the middle one, two, three, four. The last one, Nicholas, has been connected to the synagogue of Satan, the Nicolaitans, the, the uh, Gnostic false teacher. And I, I think Irenaeus or one of the church fathers makes that connection that he became an apostate. Uh, although the only connection is that they have a very similar name. And so I, I don't, I'm not sure we want to go down that road if we don't have any other evidence except for the same name. So otherwise, these guys, except for Stephen and Philip, the, the other guys, I believe, will drop out of the history uh, here. We assume they, they did their duty, but the Lord didn't call them to anything. Uh, particularly stunning, like he did to Stephen and then to Philip, who goes and, and uh, speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch about Isaiah 53. That's to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about their their names? Are These sound oh, like yeah, they're Greek, all Greek names. names. And so some of the Bible commenters want to say, hey, look, the, they picked Greek guys, Hellenist guys to serve the Hellenist widows. Uh, maybe that's the case. But there's apostles with Greek names, too, like Andrew or even uh, Thomas. And Philip, they were too. Hebrews. Right? There's a, Philip, there, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's a, we should just remind folks, the Philip that's mentioned here is not Philip the Apostle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, I don't know we can make too much out of that. Uh, maybe a little bit that they that the people picked people that they were going to trust. And the apostle said, yeah, that's great. Let's, mm. let's do it. Now, verse seven kind of wraps this section up before we focus a lot more on Stephen at the end of six and then into chapter seven. A couple of things I think are important in verse seven. One is that the word of God continued to increase so that even as these seven have now been chosen for this task and the apostles continue in their task, still it is the word of God that is active here. You mentioned earlier that the first part of the book you have Peter really taking center stage. And then the second part, you've got Paul, but all along St. Luke is very clear to, to point out, this is the word of God that is doing the work through these men. That, that seems like an important reminder, particularly at the stage where you put some more men front and center. Luke wants you to know it's the word of God that's doing the work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then this is going to become a theme of Acts, I, I just pulled up a couple, Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, 
the, uh, Acts 2.41, they received, all who received the word were baptized and were added that day, 3,000 souls. The, the, uh, the, 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 that the word of the Lord is what's growing. It's an amazing picture that, uh, that, that it's, it doesn't say the church is growing, but that the word is growing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the title of that great New Testament book, which I commend to, to everyone, especially if people are regular listeners to Sharper Iron, they'll love this book, The Word of the Lord Grows, mm-hmm. which is an introduction to the books of the New Testament by Dr. Franzman, by, by CPH. It's a beautiful book, and even his outlines, I think, are wonderful. I, I really love it. But to take this uh, phrase out of the book of Acts as the title of the book is really uh, an amazing thing to do because the church is the growth of the Lord's word. Mm. It's it's not the, the growth of the church. And that's what we're praying for and we're working for, that the Lord's word would grow. If the church grows apart from the word, it does no good at all. There's no benefit. There's no blessing there. So it's the Lord's word that is continuing to expand. And the word, the, the picture here is that the word is claiming this family and the word is claiming this person and the word is claiming this household. And so now the word of the Lord uh, is capturing the hearts and the lives of all these people in Jerusalem. Mm. And we now are bound up to that word, which endures forever. I mean, that's the, the, the promise from Isaiah that Peter quotes. The, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And as that word claims us, now we also endure forever. St. Luke makes note, particularly in this case, that the word is claiming a great many of the priests. And now yeah. that's that's quite yeah. striking, given some of the persecution that's come from the Sanhedrin. Now we've got priests who are coming, who are being brought into the faith by the word. Yeah. So so Luke wants to he does not want us to miss that both of the Pharisees, which would be the lay teachers and the Sadducees, the priesthood, the Lord is claiming his own. So we have the two famous Pharisees. Um, we have Joseph of Arimathea and we have Nicodemus who by the end of the gospels are disciples of, of Jesus, but more and more from the Pharisees come in, including the most famous of all Pharisees become Christian, St. Paul, but the priests also are coming over and rejoicing in the name of Jesus and the kindness of God and the kingdom of God, which has come. And so that's also not to be missed. So the people from the, the Hebrews, the Hellenists, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the word of the Lord is having free course and claiming them all. And and not also just those of the Jews, but also of the uh, of the non-Jews, of the of the Romans, of the uh, uh, of the Gentiles, uh, of of people who are, are far off. We, we have a little glimpse of that uh, again already in the Gospels where the Syrophoenician woman comes believing in Jesus, where the Roman centurion trusts in Jesus, where the soldier at the foot of the cross says, my Lord and my God, where the woman from Samaria not only is converted to Christ, but converts the whole village and establishes the, probably the first Christian church in that little Samaritan village. And so, so everybody, the Holy Spirit is calling everybody to repentance and faith. Mm-hmm. With that summary statement, then, St. Luke turns our attention particularly to one of the seven deacons, Stephen. So we pick up the text again now in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. 
And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Acts chapter 6. Is that what they say at St. Paul Lutheran Church about Pastor Wolfmuller? That's right. Face like an angel. Pastor Wolfmiller, before we get to that verse, let's well let's talk about Stephen. I mean, he he was just selected for you know distributing to the widows, and yet here he is, full of grace and power, doing signs, wonders. He's about to be preaching. What what's going on here with Stephen? Yeah, that's right. It's it's um, it is amazing. It seems like he was set in place to uh, help distribute the food. There's no mention made that he was ordained as serving as a pastor, but he is going to be called to testify before the Sanhedrin, and he's going to make the good testimony of the faith, which reminds us that I mean, every Christian uh, is to be ready to give an, uh, an explanation or a defense of the hope that's in us when we're asked about it. And so Stephen's going to be asked, and he's going to speak beautifully. It's one of the most beautiful sermons coming up in the next chapter, one of the longest sermons, too, mm. in, the whole, uh, in the whole of the book of Acts. And it, it reminds us that when you are being persecuted, you don't need an evangelism plan because you're just going to be called to confess in public no matter what. And so the church is being persecuted. It's growing. Uh, the name of Jesus is being confessed. It, it has to be. It's one of the great things as the persecution of the Christian gospel continues to increase in our own day and age that it becomes easier and easier to speak of Christ because you don't have a choice. You're, you're sued for doing it. So, so you have to, <laughs> and it's, it's, it really reminds us of the witness part of witness. Mm-hmm. And then comes the martyr part of witness of martyr. So, mm-hmm. so here's Stephen. He's, he does great wonders. Normally it says that the apostles are doing many great wonders and signs, but there's not many here. He doesn't get a chance. But it seems like the Lord gave him the gift of performing miracles as he had given to the apostles. And this brings some great frustration and consternation to a handful of the synagogues that are there. Synagogue of the Freedmen, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Asia, probably two different synagogues, groups of people who gather up together to to stand against Stephen and to accuse him before the Sanhedrin. Mm. Yeah, and these these groups that come before Stephen to accuse him, it says in verse 10, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. I mean, this is Jesus fulfilling the promise that he gave to his church about when they would be given the opportunity to bear witness, he would be with them. He would give them words to say, Stephen is, is an example of that. Yep. That's exactly right. And so Jesus did this and everyone marveled, but now we see the apostles and here Stephen doing it as well. Uh, to be able to um, withstand uh, and to speak clearly 
the Lord's word. Uh, when I study the martyrs and I talk about them, people are always nervous to say, Pastor, I just don't know if I, I could do that, if I could stand there and confess Christ when I'm being troubled and afflicted and death-threatened and everything. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the answer is, well, neither did the neither did the apostles think that they could do it. It is according only to the promise and strength that the Lord gives through the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So he has wisdom and the Spirit who's with him, helping him to speak and to speak clearly the name of Jesus. Talk about the accusations that they begin to bring against Stephen. The first one says he was speaking blasphemous words, and they, they're particular not only against God, but also against Moses. Why Why yeah. both of those? Yeah, they, so because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and especially of a number of portions of the law given by Moses, for example, the seed promises and the accompanying sign of circumcision or the uh, institution of the sacrifices in the temple. A number of these promises were fulfilled in Jesus and the death of Jesus marks the end of the old covenant. Uh, Remember that a covenant comes to an end when one of the people who made the covenant dies. Well, when God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. And so that covenant can only end when God dies. But at the death of God on the cross, we have the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. And so there were there were a lot of things that Moses gave that come to an end with Jesus. The Passover, the the sacrifices of the temple, the the requirement for circumcision, all those things are at an end. That's not against Moses. That's formal. I mean, Moses was giving those things to preach Christ. So our understanding of the old covenant being over is not a is not against the old covenant. We understand that the old covenant had fulfilled its purpose, and now it's retired. Uh, but the, if you don't see Jesus as the fulfillment of all these promises, then the Christian gospel does seem to be against Moses, against circumcision, against the kosher laws and food, against the temple, and so forth and so on. It, it only looks that way if you don't understand Jesus as the fulfillment of all the laws and promises of Moses and all the prophets. One of the things that stands out about this part of the text to me is the way that you see St. Stephen's experience match up with the Lord's experience. And there's a lot of similar language that begins to be used here that was used in the the trial, the passion of our Lord, you've got the false witnesses, even what they start to talk about the temple being destroyed and they bring, it's a lot of similarities between what happens to our Lord and what happens to Stephen. You start to see it already here in chapter six. Yep. And the most beautiful parallel is when Stephen himself is going to say, father, forgive them. They don't know what their Lord forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So even he has, he passes on that mercy. Yeah. They bring the same accusations. They, they're, they're stirring up the people. They're, it's all, it's all this kind of plotting and back room kind of nonsense. And, and, and they go back to this, to the temple. Jesus did say, tear this temple down. I'll build it up in three days. He's talking about the temple of his body. He also promised that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And that would happen 23 years down the road, August the 10th. We know in year 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed, not by Jesus or, by the disciples, but by the Romans who are going to come and wallop the place. Uh, so that does happen, but they are so defensive of the temple that that's the, 
the quickest way to get people stirred up. It's like the that joke about how quick an online debate will go until someone calls someone else a Nazi. Mm. It's kind of, well, how, how long will the Jewish trial go until someone accuses someone of messing up the temple? Mm. And so it happens here. They, they kind of go right to it. Uh, he spoke words against this holy place, against this law. He'll destroy this place. Jesus will destroy this place. Change the customs that Moses delivered. Mm. Uh, not realizing that just like Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus, Moses rejoiced to see the name of to see the day of Jesus. This this is what Moses was preaching, the coming of the prophet from among his brothers. Hmm. Well, I mean, Jesus says that you know you was this in, in John's gospel, I think, where he talks about he he's telling his opponents, "You've got Moses to testify to you, and if you actually believed him, you would believe in me." And and that's the mistake that's still being made here. Yeah, that's exactly right. They have Moses. Uh, they, they should have listened to him. They had Abraham. They should have listened to him. If they would have listened to him, uh, they would have believed in Jesus uh, because Jesus, because Moses preached uh, uh, Jesus. It's uh, alas, they, they did. That's and that's the problem. So, so they received neither Moses nor Jesus. Just like Jesus says, if you if you don't receive uh, if you don't receive me, you don't receive the Father who sent me. It, it's uh, so it's it's really um, it's really profound the, the the implications of their rejection. Now that last verse does stand out that that his his face Stephen's face was like the face of an angel as they saw him. What's the significance of of that? That this is what Stephen he had this special countenance. Yeah. How, there's sort of two ways to think of it. And one is supernaturally as if the Lord um, gave them this vision in the face of Stephen of this angelic figure. It could be though. And and this is how I typically seem to think of it as, uh, as Stephen's face even in the midst of this trouble and in the midst of this torment and distress, and very soon what's going to be of, uh, uh, in the midst of great violence that's going to end in his, him being crushed by stones, that he has this peace that passes all understanding, that he knows to whom he belongs, and he's not afraid. He's not afraid of suffering. He's not afraid of confessing. He's not afraid of the stones. You have to think that they're all looking around for stones big enough to crush a man's head. And he knows that he belongs to Jesus. He knows that his grave will be empty. He knows that his place is being prepared for him. He knows that his sins are forgiven. His conscience is clean and hopeful and at peace and that that reflects in his, in the serenity of his face. We're getting close to time here, Pastor Wolfman. We've got about three minutes. With that, with that thought in mind, the the serenity, the peacefulness that is there in Stephen's face, and and knowing your work, looking at the the martyrs of the church, how does a text like Acts six strengthen us to make the good confession as Christians still today? Well, we're going to see this, especially as it amps up in chapter seven, and we hear Stephen preaching, and then, and then 
being stoned and and he and he sees the vision then of Jesus not sitting at the right hand of God but standing to welcome him into heaven and to know that this is that Jesus has done this for all of us Stephen is in some ways a proto martyr he's the he's the he's going to be the the pattern that the rest of the martyrs in acts and outside the church are going to follow and and how wonderful an example because because he is now our hero who with no thought of his own safety with no thought of his own life with no thought of his own peace or pleasure or anything else he blesses the people around him by preaching the truth of Jesus and no matter what the consequences compare the face the angelic face of Stephen to the to how we find the disciples at the beginning of Acts, scared in the upper room, or I suppose that we could go back to the end of Luke. They're afraid, but not anymore. Not, that, not since Jesus has ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. Now there's no fear. There's, a, there's this great freedom of fearlessness, freedom to live and to suffer and even to die in Jesus' name. And this vision of Stephen's angel face, this this unassailable peace. What Jesus says, I will give you my peace. I give to you, not as the world give. My peace I give to you, and no one can take it from you. This unassailable peace that Jesus gives belongs to Stephen and to us too, and it's a wonderful encouragement. I remember when when I got sick a couple of years ago, and I kind of lost my mind just trying to sort everything out as. Uh, you know, weak and sick, and I, I don't know how close to death, but it seemed fairly close. And, and I thought, boy, it's great. I know how I should feel here, and I should feel at peace because the Lord has me. And knowing how I was supposed to feel before I got there was really great because then I could say, well, I'm not feeling how I'm supposed to, or I am feeling how I'm supposed to uh, because the Lord gives us peace even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that way, Stephen is our hero. Stephen is our encourager. Stephen is our model. And uh, Stephen is our friend who we'll meet soon in the resurrection. And this is a, a great encouragement for us. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, helping us today with Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. God be praised. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 6, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app. You can send up to a 60-second message to us, and we always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.